Welcome to From What If to What Next, that place in your life where no one says yes but. It's here in this safe and hopeful space that a different world comes into view. As the great Aaron Datty Roy put it recently, what lies ahead? Reimagining the world. Only that. Only that indeed. So think of this podcast as your intensive crash course in preparing for that great reimagining. Every two weeks we take a different what-if question and we explore it, not from an adversarial perspective or debating it, but rather through allowing ourselves to imagine that it has already happened, to try it on for size, to test drive the future that we long for. And I should at this point point out that there are around the world hundreds of inspired and wonderful souls who every month toss us a few coins, three pounds, coins to be precise, which enables us to keep doing this and in return they get these podcasts the moment they're released plus our bonus Ministry of Imagination episodes and much more. And if you felt like joining their gorgeous ranks, it really would make a big difference to us at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. Thank you. I have been looking forward to this episode so much. And I'm deeply thrilled at the two guests who are joining me here today. Today we're talking about the black imagination. What is the experience among communities of colour of striving to sustain an imaginative life in the context of a wider culture that is often hostile to it? Is there such a thing as a distinctly black imagination? And if so, how does it differ from other imaginations? And Joel Leon, in an amazing essay called The Black Imagination Revisited, wrote, Our freedom is inextricably tied to our willingness to reimagine. The imagination is hindered by oppressive structures. How do we imagine when imagination is shackled by powers that would rather we languish in spaces that do not allow us to be bigger and broader than our current circumstances would allow us to be? Our imaginations can run to places that grant us a freedom the physical world has not yet created for us. So we escape to books, to social media, to community to help us redefine the physical world for ourselves you're told very early on that your imagination has a cost, that your imagination has limits, that a black president cannot be who he says he is, that he must be a Muslim, he must not be an American. There is a ceiling to the imagination of blackness, you're told very on. Black imagination, by and large, he adds, is a rebellion. So it is this that we'll be exploring today. And our question, therefore, underpinning this episode will be, what if the black imagination were valued as it should be? I'm so delighted that both of my guests are able to join me. Natasha Marin is an anti-racism consultant based in Seattle, specialising in communications, community building and digital engagement. She's the curator of Black Imagination, Black Voices on Black Future and a conceptual artist whose people-centred projects have circled the globe since 2012 and have been recognised and widely acknowledged. Black Imagination, a series of conceptual exhibitions amplifying, centering and holding sacred and diverse sample of voices including LGBTQIA plus black youth, incarcerated black women, black folks with disabilities, unsheltered black folks, black children, was her bravest work thus far. And her viral web-based project reparations engaged a quarter of a million people worldwide in the practice of leveraging privilege and earned Marin, a mother of two, death threats by the dozens. Natalie Creary 
is the Programme Delivery Director for Black Thrive Lambeth. The cross-sector partnership works to dismantle the structural barriers that create and sustain mental health inequalities for black African and African Caribbean communities in Lambeth. She has a long-standing interest in approaches that tackle the root causes of inequality and push conventional boundaries. Her interest lies in working with communities and grassroots organisations to decolonise knowledge and to create opportunities for communities to have ownership of their stories and the solutions they deliver to address the social challenges they may face. Her work and research explore how race, age, class, gender and sexuality intersect to shape the health and well-being experiences of black and mixed race communities. She's also completed postgraduate studies in health psychology and lectures on health inequality, quality improvement methodologies and health promotion for Middlesex University's MSc Public Health. And she's on the editorial board of The Lancet Psychiatry. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Tashi. I'm seriously fangirling right now, so I'm really, really happy to share this space with you today. Same, same, big same. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for bringing us together. Oh, my, my, my joy. Uh, so, uh, so I'd like to start, if I might, with the exercise that we always start this podcast with, which is to invite you both to get comfortable, to close your eyes and to take a breath. And to imagine that thanks to my time machine, you're traveling forwards through time, 2022, 2023, feeling the years pass like wind on your face, 2024, 2025, and that these years you travel through are a time of remarkable social, economic and cultural transformation when momentum for positive change builds and builds, 2026. 2027, new institutions are built, everything is reimagined. These are thrilling years to live through. 2028, 2029, and then we arrive blinking into a 2030 that's not utopia, but it's the result of our having done everything we possibly could have done. And the 2030 that we arrive into is one in which black imagination is now absolutely as valued as it should be, and that's reflected in arts, culture, education, politics, economics, in everything. The work you were both doing back in the early 2020s came to fruition in a way even beyond what you could imagine back then. Congratulations. I'd like to invite you both to take us on a walk around that world. What does it look like, feel like, sound like, smell like, taste like? What would it be like to walk around in? Could you describe it to us? Uh, Natalie, could you go first? Oh, this is a tough one. Um, I guess if I start with I suppose when I wake up in the morning, I imagine that uh, the world is full of possibilities, that there'll be no limitations. I would be celebrating my grey or greying kinks and coils. Um, Also celebrating probably the odd wrinkle or two by, by that stage as well. But I think just being generally kind of comfortable in my skin. I should hope that I have grandchildren. Um, so no pressure uh, for my kids. But yeah, I'd be hoping that I'd have grandchildren by then and believing and kind of seeing a future that they define in the way that suits them and feeling kind of confident that they will achieve all that they dream of. You know, just existing in an environment where I don't feel restricted that, you know, I often say like the white gaze isn't 
glaring down at me, but that there is that sense of freedom. Mm, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Natasha? Screams with anxiety. Um, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> uh, the first thing I would definitely do is turn to you and dap you up for your time machine. <laughs> and then I'd probably spend a moment feeling smug to myself for making the choices that I made that resulted in me having a friend with a time machine that would take me with them into the future, away from the now, which is less than glorious. In 2030, because Black people are so ageless in our sort of ethereal natures, I have no idea how old we'll be. We might be 17 in nine years is what I'm saying. Um, But... I'll be, I'll be 51 and I will certainly be colloquially a grown ass woman by that point. And I would hope since mental health came up that I would have done the work I need to do to really show up the way I want to show up specifically for my kids, but also for myself. I would want to be in a space where the the three of us could even be in in physical space because right now imagining get-togethers is you know we're just starting to think about being in physical space with each other again but it would be nice to be at a place that feels sort of warm and close i think of like wagamamas i don't know <laughs> if they still have wagamamas in london but just like the closeness of a noodle bar but maybe it's not a noodle bar because you know, uh, fascination with Asian hemispheric fusion may have shifted, you know, Um, maybe we're eating diasporic food in a very trendy restaurant together and just laughing at the fact that look at us, we we are in the future now. Um, The time machine worked. I mean, maybe things don't have to be so fantastical. Maybe we can shift ourselves into the fantastical, you know? I keep thinking that this time thing that we've been sold about, you know, it starts in the past, then it moves to the present, then it goes to the future. That may not be true. Maybe we don't really understand time. Maybe we can go there. Maybe we can start literally after this podcast being in the future. Maybe we could do something together that comes to fruition in 2030. I'm not content with just the imagination. I think the imagination is a, is a starting point for real change. And I want community in the future. I want us to really have each other's backs. I think that is, you know, safety and belonging are so like sexy and exotic in the way that I hate both the word sexy and the word exotic equally. But that's what we want. That's what you want. That's what I want. That's what everybody wants. So how do we get there without a time machine? How can we make the future that we want and the present that we want in a continuum? Because I want to feel like I can smell the way the air smells when you're at the equator. I I want to open my eyes and look around me and not have to see people paler than me. In fact, I want to feel guilty that I've been inside too much and I've like 
renounced my own melanin. I want to go out to the sun like a like an old lover that like remembers that time in Paris and just like give myself over to the sun every day. I want to be excited when it's raining and when it's overcast and not exhausted by Seattle's weather. I want to have happy children who do not have to be burdened by the same crap that we've had to be burdened by. And I want to be in partnerships and in relationships with people who are actively examining their generational trauma and not acting out on their trauma, but really being self-aware about how we affect each other and how we often do like, I hesitate to say, but the man's work for, for him. We hurt each other a lot. And I want to be in a space where I feel connected in community and I want that space to be now. I don't want to have to wait nine years for it, but I will work and build to get there. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, so, so my first question is, what is the black imagination? Can we identify such a thing as being distinctly different from other ones? Is such a distinction helpful, Natasha? Yeah. Game of Thrones is the white imagination. <clears throat> we're just going to use shorthand here we're going to do it like like we're talking to children we want them to understand yeah like everything we're in currently is the white imagination so from the moment of our epidermis out we are being seen as black that's the white imagination and the black imagination we don't actually have to um, we're not obligated to how others see us in the way that we can't even unimagine that right now. So to get to the black imagination, there's only one direction. It's inside. You can't go outside of yourself to the black imagination. You have to go inside of yourself to get there because outside of yourself is the white imagination where you're being seen. Mm. Mm, thank you. Uh, and Natalie? Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of, it almost exists because of the structures that we exist in, whether there is that distinction. I think for me, I think the black imagination is something that hasn't really been really kind of tapped into, I think, in terms of the, the possibilities. I think we're often really shaped by what white people see and I guess in kind of continuing to exist in these sorts of frameworks. So for me, I guess I see it is about sort of breaking outside of that and resisting and having the ability to just be um, the way that you want to be and be seen. Mm, thank you. And I'd love to hear from you both how the work you, you do builds on or supports uh, the Black imagination. Uh, Natalie? So I think for, for, for us in, you know, in our work, I think even sort of sort of tapping into that whole concept of imagination I think is quite new for us in our in our work in a sense of, in terms of being explicit about that and what that means uh, and I think implicitly we work with our, our community to try and reimagine what services could look like or how we could address structural inequalities in order for us to thrive and for us to flourish but I don't think we've ever really kind of really sort of drilled down in terms of this being the black imagination, I suppose. And I think it was coming across Natasha's book 
that has kind of really got me into this space of really thinking about it from, you know, from that perspective. But essentially what we're trying to do is to kind of create space for black people to define what they want for their future and how they want to exist that is not governed by or shaped by what white people and, and, you know, wider society expects. And I think we have sort of like had reflections of co-production is kind of seen as kind of the, the thing that we should be doing, essentially. And we've been kind of critiquing even the methodology of co-production. That in itself can be quite extractive and exploitative when we're thinking about the Black imagination. I think for us, it's really important that we continue to kind of have these conversations and to continue to create the space so that we are able to define what it means and how how we want to thrive as a community. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Natasha? I think what I'm trying to do in my work um, always, whenever I'm sort of in a creative modality, is I'm trying to get out of the way. I think um, for me, the act of engaging, really truly engaging in the spirit of creativity is is almost religious. Like it's almost, I mean, it's definitely spiritual and kind of sacred. And, and when I'm up to it, I'm trying to remove all of my sticky human fingerprints from something that is sort of moving through me. And with this recent project of exhibitions and books, it it means listening. So I spend a lot of time listening. And I think there's some kind of, I don't know if it's alchemy or magic or something, but the posture, the mental and emotional posture you put yourself in when you listen to someone can change what they say and how it resonates with you. Um, so you can turn to a six-year-old child as though they're the Dalai Lama and be like, give me your wisdom. And they will. They will meet you exactly where you expect them to. And I think all people do this. But what's so radical about the Black imagination is that we don't even feel at home in ourselves. We are still trying to build our home in ourselves where we can occupy ourselves and really be in tune with ourselves. And so we may not be able to listen to ourselves yet. That may be a work in progress to really make a home for yourself where you hear your own voice and you heed your own voice, but we can practice with each other. And so I feel like that's kind of what I'm up to right now as I'm practicing Even the minutia of like referring to us as we and not they is being more centered in the us that we are. And if you're not part of the us, then you're the they, not us. We're us. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's beautiful. We recently did an episode with Cassie Robinson and Panthea Lee on the idea of imagination infrastructure. So the creation of a set of practices, structures, resources and culture, which together combine to provide the best possible conditions for the imagination at all scales of society. If you were thinking specifically on how to create the best black imagination infrastructure, what would you put in place? Where would you start? 
Natasha? Can we start with healthcare? Like Natalie, do I, do I have your permission for us to just like, because the scope of all the things we could imagine is humongous. But if the two of us just imagine how health, like the care of the body and the mind could be better, like, whew, child, it's a dissertation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, where should we even start? Do I have your consent? Can we do that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to run with that. I mean, imagine health. Imagine when you need to, you can go to the sun and the salt water, that there's a home you have access to that feels like your home and you can get there, that the generations of displacement, like working through and out every one of your pores, it's like um, being uh, soothed, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a balm for every uh, hundred years of agony there's going to be a hundred more of just comfort. Imagine all the black TikTokers talking about, I don't want to work. I'm done with work, darling. I don't dream of labor. Um, not having to work. Imagine having your effort go into something that you can see being produced that's relevant to you and your community, which is why you do it. And the health that comes from that. I'm just getting this started. I'm just, you know, jogging in place. What you got? Mm. Oh, right. Um, so for me, like health is is also about our relation to one another. So in terms of us thinking about our, our kind of our connection and how we are related to one another in that kind of emotional and spiritual context, I guess. So that for me would be I think something that when we're thinking about health and healthcare, I think that generally it's very much the kind of medical model and it's about the presence or absence of illness, where for me it's more about like how we are existing in relation to one another. Mm -hmm. Yes, that. Because we are hurting each other on an interpersonal level, on a structural level. I don't mean the three of us right now in this conversation. I mean, the bigger we, um, and a lot of it is done subconsciously. So we need to understand how we're hurting each other. And we need to be self-aware about how these patterns are manifested and how they continue. So we can interrupt that. So that kids can really have the village they're absolutely entitled to by birthright and the joy that comes with childhood, you know? Yeah. And I think we need to get rid of things like, um, like small ideologies that were never ours, like gender. Yeah. Gender does so much violence. So much violence is done with gender. And for what purpose? You know, if, if a baby human is born, we should be like, oh my God, this is so dope. <laughs> it's a baby human. Isn't it cute? I, I look forward to having at least as much sense as like cats and horses do, you know, just being like really happy that the next generation is even alive before, you know, taking away their potentiality. Gender is so violent and I don't know that it is ours. I don't know that our co present day concept of gender um, came from any sort of organic, um, original African place. I think the, the mindset of the atmosphere we're in is uh, lacks nuance and I want space for nuance. 
I want to think about relationships differently so that we can see and measure our benefit and our value to each other, but not based on our productivity. Really, I don't know. You know what it's like when you are talking to a friend that's shown up a lot for you and you know you owe them. And what you owe them isn't money. You owe them energy, you know? I'd like to go back to like an energetic economy, you know, where, where we, we can tell um, what, we're, what we're giving and we, and we can freely reciprocate. In From What Is to What If, and also on this podcast, we talk about the research that suggests that when we're anxious or stressed or traumatized, when our basic needs aren't met, it's very hard to live an imaginative life. What would you say that the Black experience tells us about how best to keep imagination vibrant and focused on the future in spite of conditions that have often been, to say the least, not conducive to that? I'm just reading Mariame Kaba's fantastic book, We Do This Till We Free Us, all about uh, prison abolition, where she talks a lot about uh, the role of imagination. And that question of what if there were no prisons always seems like one of the greatest what-if questions of our time that's been kept alive for such a long time. Uh, what can we learn from from that experience, do you think, Natasha? Hmm. Well, you know, I was almost positively you were going to say, Natalie. So I... I sat back in the chair of my mind. Well, I was like, please don't say me. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So we were both, we were both just like, come on. <laughs> Nerves. It's, it's a quick, simple, easy light question there. Mm. Yeah. Would it, who would like to, who would like to, to have a go at that? <laughs> so I guess that, I think that, you know, that there is that uh, kind of narrative about you know, when you are experiencing kind of stressors that you may not have the bandwidth, as they say, to imagine. But also at the same time, I think that the ability to tap into your imagination it is also provides kind of escapism and in effect, almost a sort of coping mechanism. And I think that if we sort of think about the experiences that you know, we have had as, as black communities and, and the oppression that we've experienced, then we wouldn't have made the kind of progress that we have made if it wasn't for people being able to imagine a different way of being and existing. And I think for uh, people like myself, um, Natasha, um, you know, and other activists in this space, despite the challenges that we may be facing personally um I suppose we still create space to imagine you know and that also being a driver for what we do yeah and I would just I would just challenge the notion that somehow I mean I know we know this to be true experientially that when you're in a point of crisis it doesn't feel doesn't the experience on a visceral level doesn't feel creative, but I think we, we have to kind of challenge that, you know, we're thinking people, we have these critical thinking skills. So like, why? And is that true? Because as far as I know, it's in those points of crisis where the greatest feats of the imagination are achieved. And that's part of why uh, indigenous non-men are such powerhouse imaginers because, you know, we're in a 
state of crisis most of the time and have to literally rely on the imagination as a practice for survival. You know, if you don't have uh, enough money to pay the school fees and the rent, you have to get really creative. And there are generations of mothers that have done just that. So I just think we should challenge the notion that somehow the trickle down of trauma distances us from our imagination. I would say it actually prepares us. It gets us buff um, in our imaginations. You know, like, do you even imagine, bro? Like, are you, you're going on a, one of those solitary survivalist hikes because your life is so chill. You don't have any crisis that you have to generate crisis to generate the feeling of creativity and inspiration inside of you. Because otherwise, you know, you and your 2.5 dogs in your lake house, you're imagining nothing. It's so true. Sorry, but like it's, I was just kind of reflecting just in terms of our work and when I'm sitting in these really strategic spaces and often the only black person in a room and being really struck by the lack of imagination in those spaces. So yeah, that really resonated with me actually. Thank you. Fantastic. And um, Natalie, we we had a we I was struck recently in a call we were both in where you talked about the impact that the white gaze has on the black imagination. And I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Um, I think for us, I think again, we've just been, you know, a lot of our work involves convening spaces where we bring people who have power who, you know, in terms of like the systems who are generally predominantly white, very middle class and often very male, together with with our community to, I suppose, have conversations and try and change systems as well as us thinking about what we do for ourselves, not necessarily always expecting the system to be able to meet our needs. But what we, what I said, what we find and some of our reflections have been, we, we tend to kind of start from a kind of blank sheet. So I guess it's from that, like, what if there were no constraints? You know, we didn't have to worry about whether there was enough resource or what would we want? Um, but what we find is that the system and the people within it generally are not open because they're still coming to us from the perspective of them knowing better than what is possible. That's often in kind of conflict with what we're trying to do. And again, it's like if they are the people who perhaps are holding the resource, if you're not able to kind of convince them that this is viable, the thing that we should be investing in, if we are looking to them for the resource, we are constrained by what they can perceive as possible which often then leads us if you know we don't receive a a favorable response we then kind of have to look at ways of how we resource things you know ourselves and so I think that for us is often the kind of challenge that arises in our work. Natasha did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah I'm all about the we I really am I think that we have to concentrate on ourselves. And I think it's really, 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 really difficult to do that. And you don't realize how difficult it is to center Blackness, even as a Black person, until you try. Until you try and you see how your default setting is to go back and center the comfort of usually, you know, white people. 
um, it's, that is some hard wiring. That is some generational brainwashing and really, truly at this point, you know, post, you know, traditional slavery, um, it's up to us a little bit to liberate ourselves and really liberate ourselves from pivoting around the comfort and centering the needs of people who aren't us. Like, what do we need? How do we want to be? Can we make it for ourselves? Because we really have like all the wealth that is even in circulation. That's us. That's us. You're welcome, world. Do you like having things, minerals, diamonds, colors, flavors? (laughs) That's us, you know? So we need to give ourselves what we've literally given everyone on the planet. We need to nurse our own babies. We need to clean our own houses. We need to be our own life coaches, be our own anti-racism consultants, be our own village. That's what we need to do. In Black Imagination, which if we were doing this in person, I would have bought my copy along for you to sign, but I don't think we can do that on Zoom. It's fantastic. And one of the three questions you used as prompts was, describe, imagine a world where you are loved, safe and valued. What did you learn and what surprised you about the responses that you got to that question? Oh, it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. For so many people, it was a heartbreaking question. It was the last of three questions I asked. So I would ask, what is your origin story? Um, how do you heal yourself? And the last question was, describe or imagine a world where you're loved, safe, and valued. And a lot of folks responded to the first two like, we, you know? <laughs> And kind of like screech to a halt with this third question, because that's where you encounter your internalized depression. You can find the massa inside of you right when you start imagining what safe feels like, what valued feels like, you know, what loved feels like. And um, for some of us, it's really difficult to do that work, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. But recognizing that on a visceral level, really feeling like, oof this is hard for me. I got to take a stab at it again. Like I got to try and try and try again. Um, so folks would like text me and be like, yeah, I'm filling out this black imagination thing. And you know, you're a little beep, beep, beep. You tricked me. (laughs) I thought this was easy. (laughs) So, um, I have, I mean, there's a lot of wonderful responses in the book. Um, many sort of just like linger in my mind, but I, I often think about Ebo Barton imagining greenhouses where um, cisgender, able-bodied, affluent, straight white men and women could take several seats and like grow. And uh, that, that makes me delighted. I think when folks allow themselves to be bold and take risks and really sort of command the space of their imagination around what their real needs are, it can be really freeing. It can feel really good, even if it's just as an exercise in the imagination. So for me, uh, valued is huge. Like a, a Black woman imagining being valued? What? Like I say something, but a man doesn't have to repeat what I say for it to count? I don't even know that world. That's, that's imagining. I'm telling you. Being valued for like something other than my sex appeal, other than how many children I can bear or not bear, other than what I look like, mind blown. The edge of my suspension of disbelief reached it. There's just a matrix beyond that. I just see dots and grids right now. Because I can't. 
And that's what I'm saying. This is, it's a, it's a difficult prompt. Um, and the people who do really well with this prompt just start hula hooping with it. They just start going with it. They just freestyle. They're like, you know what? I have money. I have a garden. I am a drop of water. I can do what I want when I want, how I want. You know what I mean? Like you gotta, you gotta just give yourself permission to go there because uh, it can be quite crippling to realize how difficult it is as a task. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Natalie, did, did you have any thoughts? I know you've, you've read the book as well. I mean, that whole thing of like, you know, your voice being, you know, valued without it being kind of uh, validated by um, a man and often a white man. Um, yeah, is, is, would be, would be something. Um, and I, but I think for me, it's like there's, there's an element of I've kind of got to a point now where I'm like, I just need to claim my space and claim the space that I'm in. But that has taken a long time for me to kind of um, to get there. I think in the in in the book, I was really struck by I believe it's Adrian Lefebvre response around kind of uh, like relaying how difficult that they found it, you know, when kind of giving the task and the sadness that they felt. And I think it yeah, it really struck a chord with me because. I think when I sort of myself was thinking about it, I think I struggled. It just really resonated with me, like what you had just said, Natasha, very much so. And it's hard to imagine. That's the thing. For folks who have access to these different sort of intersectional privileges, it's almost impossible to imagine. So going back to our earlier discussion, it's it's the have-nots, quote-unquote, who have the biggest access to imagination. Because if you have something, you can't unimagine having it. But if you don't, you can imagine having it. We should be able to imagine being valued. I went straight to, I, I imagined myself as ugly, according to society's standards. Ugly and stupid and me- mediocre and also wildly successful. And it was making me laugh because I kind of can't imagine it, but I can't. I kind of can. Um, and I think about my daughter who, when she describes what she wants to do when she, um, quote unquote, grows up, part of that imagining for her is, is being able to take up space like a man and um, being paid to speak about what she already knows and not being questioned based on her gender presentation or performance. And I think that's wild that she's 17 and she's already there because here we are, grown people, and we're still also struggling to imagine being valued, just being valued, having already added value to the world. We are still struggling to imagine being valued. I mean, scientists should be gathering around us and taking notes and measuring our brains and stuff like that because uh, I don't know what's wrong, but there's definitely something wrong that some of you know, our world's biggest contributors in the form of Black women as a whole um, struggle to imagine being valued. How are you going to birth a whole world, (laughs) like actually seed the planet and care for it from the beginning of time and not be valued? I mean, I'm sure the planet feels the same way. 
We're almost out of time. I'm just uh, wondering, this has been fantastic, and I'm wondering if you, either of you had any last thoughts on the question that we've been exploring, what if the black imagination were as valued as it should be? Any, anything unsaid that you'd like to have said before we, before we close? It would be gentrified immediately. So maybe in some ways it's cool that this is kind of an underground thing right now, like thinking about the Black imagination, taking up space in the Black imagination, because I'm sure everybody who doesn't need to be there would be at the cookout, just taking up space. You know, step one is definitely sit down and shut up. You know, like you have to be able to listen to Black people. And we need to do that too. Black people also need to do that. That's, that's a, for everyone kind of thing. Like everyone could stand to make more space for Black children and sort of peripheral, intersectional, Black identified folks to, to take up space imagining things. Crisis breeds innovation. And we're some innovative people out here because we have everything to imagine. So that's my final thought. Yeah, I don't know if I actually have anything, anything more to you know, to add. Um, but I think that it, it is important for, I suppose, like us to be in the lead, it's like, you know, and kind of like leading this process um, because there is always that risk that um, kind of work around this gets kind of co-opted. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of feel like that is just something that, we need to be, I suppose, mindful of. Mm-hmm. Thank you both so, so much for, for, for joining me here today. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed it too. Oh, I had so much fun. Um, Natalie, we should just like be friends. Our names are practically the same name. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Let's just decide and like fix it in our inboxes. If you're up for it, I'd like to imagine us. It's just like, and now we're friends. Absolutely. Um, because I'd be really interested to kind of find out more about like what you're doing in the art space, because I kind of feel that that is something that we certainly need to start thinking about in terms of integrating that with the work that we're doing. So it'd be really great, I guess, to learn from you and also to kind of share what we're doing. I'm so excited. It's done. It's done. Look at you, Rob, just bringing Black women together. Hey! <laughs> I know, I know. It's just what we do. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much to everybody who listens, especially those who support what we do here. We love you. And thanks to our sound maestro, Ben Adicott, he and who's shed the From What If Magic Happens. And I've loved today's conversation. I hope you have too. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.